Well, I like stories with a happy ending. I don't know about you. I enjoy a good movie, a good story. Uh, it sounds to me like I missed a blizzard uh, by not being here. We traded, I guess, sandstorms of the Sahara and 100 degrees to come back and just miss, uh, I guess, uh, the blizzard, if you will, nearly of northwest Arkansas. So I don't know if 100 degrees in a sandstorm is better or worse than a blizzard and minus zero degrees. So anyway, you look at it, it's, it's quite the adventuresome story wherever in the world you were this past week. And so I'm glad to be back with the team, absolutely. The best trip to Mali that I've ever been a part of. And I don't even know how to, to put it all into words right now, but there's a story in there, many stories of God at work in our lives, in the village's life, uh, that we're still processing through. And so you'll be hearing more about that as we, as, we, as we move into the future, I'm sure. But I like a story. I like a good story. I like a story with an ending. In fact, the kids know when we go to the, the movie or I go to the movie and I see a movie before they see the movie, then they'll say, how was it, Dad? I said, well, it was a wonderful story. The good guy won and he got the girl. It always happens that way. And I love stories like that. Good stories, however up and down it goes. A story that ends well. Also a story that has adventure inside of it. I like a story that has excitement. A story when somebody's fighting against the odds. They're swimming upstream. That's, that's carving a new path. That's doing something that somebody said they couldn't do. And when you see that and you hear it and you know it's a true story, then I really lean in on it. And I want to hear it. I want to hear more. And I want to study more and read more on it. I think because in part, a little bit, of it describes all of us. All of us to some degree or another in some area of our life or another, we have had areas that we have had to overcome. When in third grade I was diagnosed with dyslexia and the fact that the reason why I failed the second grade and the reason why I barely made it out of the first grade was because I couldn't read well and I was had a learning disability. What a stigma to put on a, a third grader and, and to have to deal with and to go through and to think about But it was one of those things that at least it made sense now why I struggle with school and why spelling to this day is not my forte. I hate people who play Scrabble, all right? And so if you play Scrabble on your phone, then I just kind of do that to you, okay? But uh, I still cannot play those kind of games, and I struggle in that area. But I like stories like that because when you dive into dyslexia, you find many people have had it. Ted Turner, Walt Disney. Uh, many people who have been successful have overcome the odds. Some people even say Einstein had it. I don't know. And the point being is that stories have adventure, have overcoming challenges. We all have them. But I love the story that ends well. And I think maybe the story that ends well is more important than the story that begins well. Because, again, we're all going to have the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the, 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 the twists and the turns of our life. But how we navigate them and how we go through them is so important. And even just understanding that some of the most successful people in the world have overcome setbacks in their life. A study that came out a, a number of years ago, so I assume the numbers are fairly accurate to still today. But over 50% of all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had a C or C-minus average in college. They weren't maybe at the top of their class. They weren't the best, the brightest, or whatever. But they somehow have overcome that maybe setback, if you will. 65% of all U.S. senators were in the lower half of their school, and 75% of U.S. presidents were in the lower half of their school. 
Something about it, overcoming the odds. I like stories like that. Some people, they, they face their odds, they face their circumstances, and it overwhelms them. It sends them into a, a cycle of depression or even to a period of hopelessness. And how do you overcome hopelessness? Hopelessness, again, is more of a spiral. It's like that depression that comes upon us. And somehow one thing leads to the next. The cup is never half full. It's always half empty. If even half empty is descriptive of, uh, uh, of them. I mean, it's just negative and it just kind of spirals down. Well, there's two kinds of hopelessness I think we need to understand. There's, there's circumstantial hopelessness. That circumstantial hopelessness is when situations that leave us lost and in despair. Could be a broken relationship, could be a dead-end job, could be a boss that overlooks you all the time and you never get that recognition. Could be a teacher in a school for an entire year, you're, you're stuck with them and they, they're not giving you the breaks that you need. Circumstances. Again, you look at the Richard Bronsons, you look at the Ted Turners and the Walt Disneys and you look at their success stories. And somehow, despite their dyslexia or whatever their setbacks may have been or your setback may have been, they, they overcame. A love and overcomer kind of story. Overcame their circumstances. Whether it was grit, determination, what was it? Was it networking? Was it the right people in their life at the right time? Everyone has, again, a part of that story. But I want to talk about another form of hopelessness that you can't miss, and that's core hopelessness. Core goes deeper. Core goes to the heart. Core goes down inside of you. And it and you and you wake up and you... You can, the thing is about, about core hopelessness is that there are people in this world that are in circumstantial hope. They're living success. They're living the American dream. They have a family. They have the house and the car and the dog and the white picket fence. They have it all. And on the surface, it looks so beautiful and so hope-filled. But there's something in the core of their being there's something that, that is inside of them that's missing, that's been wounded, that's hurt. That it's a spiritual thing. It enters into a spiritual realm where it's hopeless inside of there. Where circumstantial hopelessness can be overcome by grit and determination and networks and the right people in the right time and the right place and all that kind of stuff. Core hopelessness takes an intervention. An intervention from God where there's a spiritual rebirth when deep internal disharmony is existing, but yet somehow in the midst of that dark cloud, there is an intervention that takes place of our spirit. And it's that hopelessness that everybody in this world at some point must face. It is that core hopelessness that even if you were born with a silver spoon in the hand and everything was handed to you, every one of us in this room must face the reality and hear, hear the music today or some point in our life that there's a core being inside of us that wrestles with hopelessness. Hope is the oxygen of the soul. Thomas Fuller said, if it were not for a hope, the heart would break. Someone has said that it can live 40 days without food, three days without water, minutes without air, but only seconds without hope. Before your soul from the inside out begins to die, you've got to have hope. You've got to have rediscovered, figured it out, and how to have that hope. Take your Bibles, be finding Ephesians chapter 2. We turn 
the page now into a new chapter of six chapters in Ephesians as we study it through verse by verse. And we didn't miss the last couple of verses of Ephesians 1, but we will come back to them at a different time in in, in our study of Ephesians. So we'll pick up verse 1 to 10 today. And again, I I mentioned in in, in the first message that this is going to be a deep study. There's going to be some deep elements, and we need to just dive in and and go through this together. So hang with me on this, because it is important that we get this message today. It will truly give us, hopefully, the hope that we need in our core, in our being, and who we are. And if you look at this passage, I want us to see today that we need to face hopelessness. I said, I said, everyone in this room, no matter your circumstantial state of hope or hopelessness, Every one of us needs to, needs to wake up someday and look in the mirror. The mirror of our soul, the mirror of our spirit, and we need to, we need to deal with the core hopelessness within, that is within us all. And we can, we can take positive mental attitude pills, and we can listen to the right motivational speakers, and we can have positive thoughts and We could do all of that, but it doesn't fix the sickness of the soul. And what what Paul does here is he uses some very harsh, maybe disturbing, yes, absolutely, words to describe our core. And that is what we must wake up to at some point in our life and wake up and face that music. So here's the first thing we need to face, the way that we need to face if we're going to face head-on hopelessness. And one is that we need to stare death in the face. We need to stare death in the face. So jot these down as we go along. That We need to understand that, that death is imminent. That death is within. That there is something that will kill the body, the soul, and the spirit. And we cannot dodge it. We cannot candy coat it. We cannot ignore it. It is a reality and the shallow materialism and the silly idiosyncrasies of our life will not fix it. The reality is that we all are born dead. We are live people living in a dead world. And the reality is, is that we must face that that, that morbid thought, and again, hang with me on this, because we are talking about hope, but I think before we can go to the hope, we must first face our own internal hopelessness. And what the reality of our own deprived nature and our own deprived situation is, is that here's a life principle for you, that I must realize I am a sinner by nature and by choice. That I am a sinner by nature and by choice. It is innate within me. It is innate within me to lie. I am not a liar because I've told a lie. I lie because I'm a liar. Alright? I am not an adulterer because I committed adultery with someone else. I am already an adulterer in my heart. I just got to realize that those desires are within me. I am not a cheater because I've cheated. I cheat because I'm a cheater. 
I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's a part of who I am. It's what makes up who I am. And it's what Jesus was saying when he said in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, he said, nothing outside of a man. This is important. Get this one. Nothing outside of man will make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what goes out of a man that makes him unclean. Mark chapter 7, verse 15. It is not the evils of pornography on the outside. It is not the evils of, of, of idolatry over there. It's not lying and cheating and stealing out there. That all comes from within. And I have to face the music that within of me is the problem. I think we have all seen the movie, heard the story, read the book or whatever, and heard the tale of the Trojan horse where there's a 10-year siege. And the Greeks, the Trojans had overcome a city and the Greeks had constructed a huge wooden horse and hid, selected 30 men and hid them inside of that horse. And then the Greeks went off to get away, to run and hide. And what do the Trojans do? They go out and they bring this great, big, huge horse into the city. And there's a trophy, a battle. They had stolen it and had taken it from the Greeks. They bring it into the city. And if you've seen the movie, Brad Pitt, and you know the story, uh, I always wait for the movie to come out. And, uh, and you know the story the soldiers that are hiding up inside and everybody goes to bed at night. And then all of a sudden, these soldiers come out and they let the rest of the troops into the gated city and they conquer the city by the trophy that was theirs to claim, theirs to conquer. It was their, their, their gift, if you will, of, of, of the spoils of battle. But yet at the same time, it was not what was on the outside that mattered. It was what was on the inside. It's what is going on on the inside of us that really, really is the issue. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, 1 to 3. And you were, just, just hear the morbid thoughts of these words. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you walked, you walked, literally he's saying you walked in sin. You were dead in your sins following the course of the world, following the prince. Who who were you following? You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the works of sons of disobedience. Who are we following? Who's this prince of the power of the air? We'll know later on in in chapter 6 that this is the devil. That we are dead in our sins, in our trespasses, that we are walking, and who are we walking with? We're walking literally with the devil in our life. We're, we're like sons of disobedience. We're, our lineage is of the devil. Our father is the devil. That is what we are born into by our very nature. Again, let's keep going. Among whom we all Once, everyone, notice the word all, we all once. That means even your precious children that are perfect and never do anything wrong. Yes, even those spoiled hedonist kids. They all, just like you and I, once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
That's how we live. That's what drove us. That's what got us out of bed. That's what got, got us motivated in life. It wasn't for the good of humanity. It wasn't for the glory of God. It was because there was something in it for me. The passions of the flesh. We take jobs still today based on this sinful nature within us. What's in it for me? Show me the bottom line. Where's the promotion? Where's the opportunity? What drives us so much are the passions of our flesh. And now he keeps going there. And he says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and the nature, children of wrath. Two times in one passage, he calls the sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Not a real positive picture. What we have to do, if we're going to know what core hope is, we're going to have to first face death head on. We're going to have to own up to our own lostness, our own depravity, our own death. Let me tell you this, and you can jot it down or you can just remember it or maybe it will just resonate in your mind. But your path to the good life that we talk about, It's through the cemetery of your own life. You must go through your own life and face head on that you have been following the passions of your flesh, that you are a child of wrath, and you've been living as a son of disobedience, that you're dead in your trespasses and sin. There's not life there. And again, this is not a feel-good kind of moment. You've got to hang with me. Because until we, until we come to the end of our self and we realize that self isn't good enough and that fixing it up and prettying it up and building a Trojan horse around it that really this the decay that's on the inside, that's the greater issue at hand. Until we come to the end of our self, we'll never know the grace and the mercy and the power of God. It's like, a, it's like a boy who went off to college his freshman year in college, and he thought college was for hanging out. He thought college was for the parties, fraternities and the sorority parties that he could go hang out at. He thought that's what college was like, and he made it one semester. And he wrote his mom in a text message and says, I flunked my, all my courses. I am kicked out of school. Coming home, prepare pop. The next day comes, and he gets a text message back. Pop prepared, prepare yourself. And I think the reality that all of us must face is that we may live like hedonistic little suckers that never grow up in our own little world, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sin. And we may not feel real fuzzy good about that. But until we wake up one day and we face our own death, we will not be prepared to meet Pop in the end. And sometimes we think and we have this image of God as he's some wrathful God with lightning in his fist and fire in his eyes and he's wanting to just bash us down and keep us back from enjoying life. But we don't know the God of Scripture Because even though Paul declares that we're dead and trespasses and sin, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, following the passions of our flesh, and that's the kind of life we've been living, he comes right out 
And he gives us the second glance that we need to see in this world, that we need to meet God face to face. We need to meet God face to face. When we meet God face to face, will He be holding that lightning bolt in His hand? Will fire be shooting out of His eyes? What will we meet when we meet God for the very first time? Will it be that vengeful God, angry God, jealous God firing at us? And that's the image that some people have. That's why they run from God. They run from the church. They hear a message like the first part of that, and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I want a feel-good message. And we cannot feel good and know the hope of God until we first see our own death. When we meet God face to face, what do we see? I love verse 4. It's maybe my favorite verse in all of Ephesians. Whenever he's given us this death sentence, when he's read our, our obituary and our autopsy's been declared right there before us, what does he say in verse 4? Circle the word, but. Don't miss it. He says this, but God being rich in mercy. I love that phrase. Though we're dead, though we've been following the passion of our flesh, though we're, though we're sons of disobedient children of wrath, though we're all these things, the first encounter we have with God is with His mercy. It's not with His wrath. It's not with His anger and fury. It's not with His justice, though it's all fair and He could do that. He could have wiped us all out. The first encounter anybody ever has is with God. They have it with His mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, listen, the but is where it's at. Don't miss the but. The but is the mercy. The but is where the things turn. The but is where hope turns on and, and fear and death and wrath turn off. The but is where it's at. That's why you must circle it. That's why you must know it's there. But God, being rich in mercy. Pascal, a French apologist, said it like this, knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair, or you might say hopelessness. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because He shows us both God and our wretchedness. What a beautiful statement. The fact that the picture isn't clear until you get to Jesus and then you see but God who is rich in mercy. You see, the God who accepts and loves us and brings us in, what happens whenever we encounter this merciful, loving Heavenly Father? You just follow along and read, and I'll tell you to underscore some key phrases. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love, which He loved us, underscore the word loved us. Even when, he, even when we were dead in our trespasses, We were still dead. We were still hopeless. We were children of wrath. We were still sons of disobedience. We're all of that. What did He do? He made us alive. Underscore that phrase. Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up. And raised us. Underscore raised us. Raised us up with Him and seated us. Underscore the word seated us. The phrase seated us. With Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in 
in Christ Jesus. If you want to memorize this section of Scripture, if you feel hopeless today, if you feel like your core, everything is polished and cleaned on the outside and everything is in order on the outside, but you feel hopeless on the inside, you may be staring at death in the face, your own wretchedness and your own sin in the face. I want to tell you to stare at Jesus. But God, who's rich in mercy, what does He do? He loves us with great love. He, he made us alive. He raises us up. He seated us with Him. He's shown kindness toward us. He's done all of these things. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's all the things that happens when we encounter God. When we meet Him. But we won't meet Him until we first see our own death. We won't know Him because we don't need Him. 60 Minutes did an interview of Jack Welch. Dan Rather did the interview. Outspoken former CEO of General Electric had written a book called Winning. And in this, and in this he asked him, he says, what's the toughest question you've ever faced in, in, in your life? And as a successful CEO businessman, he said the, the toughest question that he, he had ever faced was, do you think you're going to heaven? And Dan rather asked him, well, you answer, how'd you answer the question? He says, it's a long answer. He says, but I said that if caring for people, if giving it all, you're all, if being a great friend counts, despite the fact that I've been divorced a couple of times, and no one's proud of that. I haven't done everything right all the time. I, I, I think I got a shot. I'm, in a hur- I'm not in a hurry to get there and to find out anytime soon. You know, I find a man of great confidence and swagger, a man of great leadership skills, bumbling over a bunch of words there, saying, I don't have a clue. I don't know. I just hope. I just think. Flip a coin, roll the dice. And I want to say to Jack, and I want to say to you today, but God, who is rich in mercy? He loved you. He, he, he raised you up. He, he gave life. He wants to give life to you. He, he wants to seat you with Him in heavenly places. He wants you to be along beside Him. He, he wants to give you the hope that, that nothing in this world can find. And it's not going to be through anything you're going to do. Verse 9 makes that abundantly clear to us whenever he says it's not a result of works. Jack, so that no one may boast. It's not going to be because you've been a good, loyal friend. It's not because you've been a good boss. It's not because you were an ethical person. Listen, I wouldn't trust my best day on earth to get me to heaven. That's a perfect place, and I'm not perfect even in my best day. It will be because of His great love for me, because He showed mercy to you and to me. And I need to embrace that as my source of hope. It's not going to be anything I'm going to do, any formula I'm going to figure out. This is where the message puts it. It says, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you. That is your hope of glory. Christ in you. Colossians 1.27 
That is your hope of glory. The third thing we need to face. When we face our life and we look at our core, and that is we face toward the future with hope. Now, it sounds like, oh, a great message, Mike. You started in the dark and you ended in the light. You started in hopelessness and you ended in hope. Nice little ending to a beautiful story, right? Well, maybe. Could be. You'll have to decide to some degree whether or not that's going to be the case of your life. Because verse 10 says a beautiful statement here. He said in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good God of all the universe does a beautiful work in you. That word workmanship, for the longest time I would have envisioned something like building a house or constructing something, saws, sawdust, blowing everywhere, nails, hammers, all that banging and clanging along. But actually it's not a word used for constructing a house. It's used for art. You know, you come to our neighborhood and our subdivision and you have a hard time finding a different house. Literally, the house right next to ours is just the reverse of our floor plan. Change the brick on the outside and flip it over, and that's our house. Why, 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 why that? It's just the way we build houses in America. Aren't you glad that God didn't cookie cut and just flip us around? Change the exterior a little bit? This word, workmanship, is the word for art. beautiful thing about art is that every stroke and every canvas is a little bit different. It's the snowflake that looks different from every other snowflake. It's the piece of pottery that looks different from every other piece of pottery. It's that God is shaping you like a beautiful piece of art created in Christ Jesus just to be beautiful? No. For good works. God has a future in store for you. And again, one of the favorite verses in the Bible is, is the book of Jeremiah. Read it out loud with me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. We love that verse. How many of you have heard that verse before? Great verse. One of those you want to write write down and memorize. God has a plan for you. Prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you future and hope. You know when he's writing this? where he's writing it to and who he's writing it to. He's writing it to the nation of Israel when they're in exile, scattered abroad under the uh, oppression of Babylonian or Assyrian rule at this time. Wow. They're not living in plush circumstances. But what he said on that day when he penned those words, Jeremiah was saying that God has a future for you. He has hope for you. Just like he said in verse 10, God is making something beautiful of you. And that's what happens when core hope enters into our broken souls, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Whenever it entered in, it fills in the crevices and it makes us new and whole and complete. That is the hope that we want to have. Norma Vincent Peale was traveling through Hong Kong one time and came across a tattoo parlor and was looking on the, on the window panes of, of all the different tattoos that you could go in and immediately they would, they would apply to your body forever and ever, amen. 
And so he was looking down there, and he had the anchor and the love mom and all the, the standard art, body artwork. And he came across one there. It said, born loser or born to lose. Born to lose. Norman Vincent Peale walks into the tattoo parlor. He says it was disturbed by that. He walks in and he asks the, the artist, he said, does anybody get that tattoo? Born to lose. And he said, yes, there's actually been several. That's why I put it up there for people to get if they want to get it. He said, why would anybody forever and ever put on their body that I am born to lose? And the Chinese man said in his own broken English, he says, before the tattoo is on the body, the tattoo is on the mind. And the reality is, is that some in this room today may be beautiful on the outside, but in their soul, in their spirit, it just says, born to lose. And I want to say to you today that God wants to write a new story in your life. He wants to write a story of hope. He wants to write a story of grace and life and engagement and community. He wants to write a story of redemption. He wants to make in your life a beautiful piece of art. You know, growing up, I didn't grow up in a perfect home like nobody else that grew up in a perfect home in this room today. Circumstantially, hope was in short supply to some degree. Growing up in a broken home, broken up, growing up, you know, academically challenged and, and uh, not being at the top of any class and any ranking system whatsoever. Three boys growing up in a hairdresser's home that meant, with no child support meant that we were not a wealthy family. We had, I didn't know there was wealthy at that time. I just knew we had what we had and we lived on what we lived on. But something happened in my life as an eight-year-old boy after failing second grade as a seventh as a seven-year-old boy, something happened in my life that despite the circumstances that was going on right then in my life is I realized it simply as an eight-year-old that I needed Jesus. And there was something going to be about that encounter that would make my life whole. And my mother held my hand to the, to the mercy seat of, of God and, and we prayed and I became a follower of Jesus on that day. Oh, there's been many ups and downs and all arounds in my life. But I can tell you this, is that God wanted to write in my story His story. He wanted to overlay His story on top of my story. As He wants to do everyone in this room. I believe it. But you will never know His story in your story until you first of all know that you're dead in your trespasses and sins your child of wrath and your child of disobedience. Until you own that up and you face the, your own cemetery of your own soul, then you will never know the mercy seat of God. My challenge to you today, my call to you today, is to face the death of your own core. Start looking in the mirror. Secondly, meet God. Run to His mercy seat. Let His mercy spill over your life. And then walk in the new hope of the new art, beautiful art, the beautiful hope-filled life that he is trying to make of you. Let God write a story in you today. Let him start it, that it will never end. Let me pray.
Father God, everyone in this room, and I know it because your word declares it, everyone in this room, we all, we all, we all lived in the passions of our flesh. We've all lived or are currently living in the death of our own soul. Lord, if we can't face death head on, we will never know life at our core. Thank you, God, that you showed mercy and not wrath. Thank you, God, that you showed mercy and not anger and vengeance. Thank you, God, that it was your open arms of love and acceptance that came and embraced us and not fiery thunder and and eyes piercing and killing us. Thank you, God, that you write a story in us, a story of hope, a story with a future. And Lord, I would pray today that you would write that same story in everyone in this room. Father, don't let us be dark in our souls, but may there be light. Just as you have your own prayer time with God right here, right now, and you think about this message, I'm going to tell you today that all across the front of this stage, we're just going to call it the mercy seat of God. We're just going to let this be the place of mercy. And if you today need to meet God for the first time, and you've been fearing God, angry at God, whatever with God, and today you, you, you hear that voice of God saying, but God, but God, but God, being rich in mercy. You realize today that you need a relationship with God. Come to this altar and just bow down and just say, God, I don't know how to pray, what to pray, how to how to say it, but Lord, I want your mercy. I want your love. I want your grace. I want to follow you this day forward. I want to pray that in Jesus' name. You pray that. You put your own prayer in there. And you can go back and be seated. I want to hear about it. I want you to tell me about it. Write me an email. Come see me after the service. Whatever. Let's celebrate this new life. This is your time. This is your story. This is God's story in you. Would you stand and sing?